Hi-ho, everybody out in Radio Land. This is Tom Cito, Disney animator, historian, and all-around wise guy. And you are listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast. Talking all things Disney. With your hosts, El John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome once again to the Skull Rock Podcast, where every week we talk all things Disney and pop culture with never-before-heard stories. Behind-the-scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, and much, much more. I'm your co-host, Al John Go, musician, longtime Marvel, Disney, and Star Wars fan, and pop culturist. You can contact me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. Hi, I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, and author, and I'm also a troublemaker sometimes, but welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Music and Audible. Like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Well, here we go again. Another show, Al John. Why, thank you, Virtual Dave. Appreciate that. Hope you're having fun out of the studio and into our little computer. But, uh, man, what an awesome show we have for you. We have part three of our interview with the legendary Don Hahn, film producer and man extraordinaire. We're going to be talking to him about the celebration of a Disney classic, one of my uh, favorite films. This is Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Can't believe it's been 20 years. And I'd also like to encourage everyone out there to please rate and review our podcast, especially there on Apple Podcasts. We really would appreciate it. Every little bit helps the algorithm, helps us get in front of more people. And I'd also like to say you too can also leave a voicemail message. All you have to do is go to anchor.fm and click on our little icon that says, leave us a message and it'll appear in our next show. And uh, Dave will be back. We'll be able to talk more Disney, answer your questions, and it'll be a happy, fun time for everybody. But first, we've got some news. Skull Rock Podcast, this week in Disney and pop culture. Alrighty. Shang-Chi remains number one at the box office. $35.8 million haul. New Line of Warner Brothers, uh, their new movie, Malignant, earned a tepid $5.5 million coming in third at the domestic box office, according to The Hollywood Reporter. So Shang-Chi is doing awesome, and they have uh, reached $145.6 million, uh, which is awesome globally so far for a PG-13 movie. Pretty nice. Wow. And it also has a very high rating. So once again, please go out there uh, if you can and uh, check out Shang-Chi. When you get a chance, I think it's uh, pretty cool. Marvel's doing really well and uh, keeping 
the movie industry afloat, which is great. And then you also have another <laughs> Disney film, Ryan Reynolds at Free Guy. Um, while it did fall a little bit, of course, um, uh, in its uh, from its debut, it's still doing in really well with 101.8 million uh, domestic, which is awesome. And then the, I'm looking forward to this as well, uh, Malignant, which is um, a brand new film from James Wan. I'm a big horror movie buff. So uh, even though it didn't do too well, I think the promotion was a little lackluster. It kind of waited to the last minute. Um, to be promoted at 5.57 million. Um, it looks like a really, really cool film. And I'm uh, looking forward to seeing that. I love horror movies. So <laughs> I like that, Al John. Now, Disney's live action, The Little Mermaid, is to open Memorial Day weekend 2023. And the remainder of Disney's 2021 movie slate, including The Eternals, West Side Story, will get theatrical treatments in a 45-day window, while the animated movie El Canto will have a 30-day window. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. So that is big news. I'm looking forward to The Little Mermaid live action. Uh, we also have got some dates for star wars movies as well and we will be updating everyone uh, in regards to the star wars plan which is going to be very interesting over the next few years um so dave and i will revisit that when he's back in to the studio to discuss marvel's uh or disney's rather disney uh, and their big plan for movie releases uh it looks like you know we we talked about patty jenkins rogue one um, going to be released here in the next couple of years. And then from there, it looks like they're going to be releasing new star Wars films over the next, uh, couple, uh, couple years, every, every two years rather, um, starting, I believe with Taika Waititi's film and then Kevin Feige helmed a star Wars film. We don't know if that's going to be a trilogy, a new trilogy of films or standalone films. Um, but, Disney has done a really great job with Disney Plus and having Star Wars fans really uh, subscribe, provide content, much like they're doing with Marvel and kind of rounding out the universe. But uh, we'll see how that works out with Star Wars and the rest of the Disney films. We'll talk more about that next week. Speaking of Marvel, Marvel launched a brand new refreshed Marvel Unlimited app. Wow. So I love Marvel Unlimited. Really big fan of uh, the fact that you can get the comics and read comics whenever, wherever you want. And it is a treasure trove of just amazing, amazing work. So for one, you know, one small price uh, subscription fee, you can check out the award-winning Marvel Digital Comics app, which got a huge refresh. And you've got access to over... 29,000 issues of classic and newer titles, everything from the roots of Marvel's iconic characters to the ever-evolving universe behind its blockbuster films, games, TV shows, and the app houses over 80 years of storytelling for fans and newcomers alike. So it's refreshed, it's amazing, and you could check out uh, all kinds of great creators, including Jonathan Hickman, um, Scotty Young, Alyssa Wong, Nathan uh, Stockman, Kate uh, Kelly Thompson, and much, much more. Of course, all the titles you know and love from The Amazing Spider-Man, The X-Men, The Avengers, Iron Man, Captain America, and so much more. So 
you know, the goal, quote, the goal for Marvel Unlimited has always been to provide the best digital comics experience for our fans by giving them direct access to unmatched depth, breadth, and vibrancy of Marvel's characters and stories. With this relaunch, we're bringing fans an even richer experience with Marvel stories designed in a dynamic vertical format for the first time. And, um, and that is from president of Marvel Entertainment, Dan Buckley. And our new Infinity Comics give our creators a chance to tell stories in entirely new ways. And we're looking forward to connecting with our fans to those stories in the months to come. Um, and I have to say, the 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 format that they're doing with these um, Infinity Comics is a lot of fun. Uh, it's very dynamic in its storytelling. Um, they've integrated music and a lot of these things. So it's a really great experience. And uh, it's only $9.99 for an annual subscription per month of $69 a year, or you could do the annual plus subscription, which I've done, which is 99 a year. Plus you get some really cool benefits uh, like little gifts and membership kit and everything like that. Plus you also get 10% off of shopdisney.com, which is awesome. So definitely look into that. If you're a big comic books fan, or if you're looking into getting into comic books, um, I really love digital comics and they don't take any up any space on the shelf. So <laughs> it's pretty cool stuff. And last but not least, the matrix uh, resurrections stuns with its first trailer. This Warner Brothers, uh, Warner brothers franchise installment will be released theatrically and on HBO max simultaneously December 22nd. And this highly anticipated story will continue um, with Keanu Reeves, um, Neo, uh, Thomas Anderson, and Trinity Carrie-Anne Moss. So they are back in the role. There is a therapist played by Neil Patrick Harris as well. But there are recasting of, of some of these uh, these characters. Uh, Jada Pinkett Smith is returning as well. But um, you know there are also some characters uh, that people know and love that have been recast. And there's an explanation for that in this resurrections if you will uh promo so please check out this trailer after all these years to be going back to where it all started back to the matrix and that just wraps up the new segment hope you've enjoyed that and now let's get into this celebration let us continue on with part three of our interview with celebrated producer and man about town, Don Hahn, as we celebrate the 20th anniversary of an amazing film, Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Now, we've all heard of the legend of Atlantis. Pure fantasy. Well, that is where you'd be wrong. That young fact gets crazier every year. I can prove Atlantis exists. I'm sure of it this time. Milo James Thatch. I'm acting on behalf of my employer, who has a most intriguing proposition for you. It's the Shepherd's Journal. This journal is the key to finding the lost continent of Atlantis. I'll never believe you. I will find Atlantis on my own. I mean, if I have to rent a rowboat. This is exactly what I wanted to hear. But forget the rowboat, son. We'll travel in style. You're going to need a crew. Yes, Mr. Thatch. But you'll need engineers and, and geologists. Got them all. The best of the best. Gaetan Moliere, geology and excavation. Audrey Ramirez. Don't let her age fool you. 
The name's Sweet. Joshua Sweet. Medical officer. Vincenzo Santorini. Demolitions. Hey, look. I made a bridge. Lieutenant, yeah. take her down. Diving officer, submerge the ship. Die! Die! Chances for survival rest with you, Mr. Fats. You and that little boy. So let's not my lot Well, as promised, everybody, uh, we are in our third week, unprecedented, I believe, here at the Skull Rock Podcast. Uh, We've got producer, director, accomplished painter, musician, book author, and really a true renaissance man, Don Hahn, back with us uh, to talk about the 20th anniversary of Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to be back here. And um, I, I am astonished that you would have me back a third week in a row uh, and and have loved every minute of it, except once again, the green room is getting a little old. But still, I appreciate the, the generosity. Well, you know, now now that uh, we're completing our third interview with you, I know you'll be packing up your camping gear and heading out of the green room. We will absolutely have that uh, cleaned up uh, and get some, <laughs> get some fresh snacks in there. Okay. Thank you. It's, you know, it's a lot like The Bachelorette where uh, every week you let a few guys go and I've been lucky to get the rose for at least two weeks here. So. <laughs> All righty. So, uh, Don, we're back because, I, I you know, again, this has been amazing because there were so many uh, big anniversaries. You know, we, we talked with you a few weeks ago about beauty and the beast, the 30th anniversary last week, we talked about hunchback uh, and the 25th anniversary this week. It's the 20th anniversary of uh, Atlantis, the lost empire, not this week itself, but this year is the 20th anniversary. And, I think the first question I want to ask you about this, and I think our audience would be really interested to hear this, uh, is why Atlantis, the Lost Empire, action-adventure film, it was sort of a pivot away from the musicals that were being done. Was it, was, you know, wh- what was the reasoning uh, with you and Kirk and Gary and everybody to go uh, and pivot like that? Well, here's the pitch, and it's exactly what we said Twenty. 20- 21 years ago when we were starting this, which is we've been to, if you're used to a Disneyland metaphor, we've been to Disneyland, to the hub, through the castle, to Fantasyland, happily many, many times. This time, when we get to the hub, we're going to go left and we're going to go to Adventureland, which is every bit as much as the Disney legacy as anything else. We're going to have a great action-packed Adventureland movie. And that was the pitch. And we, boy, did we believe it. And, and and everybody else did too. It's like, yeah, of course not. Why haven't we done that before? So that was the pitch that kind of got us uh, off the ground and got us going. And, and, 
and why Atlantis? I, I, you know, was there was there something about that subject matter? Why not, you know, a jungle cruise type of thing, or you know, queuing off of of an adventure into the you know the the continent, you know, the African continent. Well, we looked at a lot of stories that were about uh, big groups of experts heading off on a journey. And Journey to the Center of the Earth, a Jules Verne story, is probably the one that comes to mind mostly. And we looked at that, and we read it, and we looked at the movies. And um, that's kind of the pattern we went after. We liked the idea of a team, kind of a roughshod team of experts thrown together, uh, where you could get some comedy and camaraderie and, um, and go off on a mission. So we looked at, uh, you know, Seven Samurai, and we looked at... Um, the Great Escape, and all these movies that had a group of guys and girls together to do something. Um, and that's kind of what got us started. <clears throat> the reason Atlantis uh, was fascinating to us was there had been some movies about him, but they were mostly centered in mythology. And, and we were interested in doing an exploration into what the true story of Atlantis was, which nobody really knows. Um, but Plato had talked about, in, in actuality, had talked about Atlantis. It was shrouded in mythology. Um, and it was also not known enough that we could make up a bunch of stuff about it. Sure. And so, uh, it was, it was ripe. You know, it was, it was like a adventure fairy tale where you could just say, okay, uh, here's the basic world we're going to live in. And now we're going to make up the rules. We're going to make up the, uh, some of the uh, ancient kind of stories about Atlantis and others of them are going to be totally factual. So that's, that's why we pulled out Atlantis. Uh, I, I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it is a story that I think when you say Atlantis, most people are familiar with some aspect of that. And yeah. and you guys could create an entire world around that mythology. Yeah, I mean, the movie opens with a quote from Plato, and it's, the, it's just the idea that there was once this great civilization that in the course of one night disappeared off the face of the earth. And that's great. I mean, I think we enjoy stories like that or like Brigadoon where you find these kind of um, – uncharted territories with amazing civilizations. And we're fascinated by that, that were uh, once um, great places and just vanished without a, without a trace. So um, that was a big, big part of it. Uh, and then we started to shuffle around and just say, well, where can we set this? What time period can we set it in? How can we set up this kind of journey to the center of the earth idea? Uh, and, and most of these ideas, by the way, were hashed at Chevy's Mexican restaurant in Burbank, California. That's Chevy's. Where the tortillas <laughs> are always fresh. That's amazing. <laughs> Another shameless plug. Another plug. Uh, yeah. Fresh it's guac. Table now, so, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> tableside guac, y'all. Uh, but you know it's really interesting uh you know we joke about uh, the these restaurants but oftentimes uh it's going off site from the studio to a place like chevy's or the Talleyrand or um you know uh, one of those types of uh, restaurants and uh and that's where some of these things happen. I mean, yeah. you you guys literally, it was you, Kirk, Gary, and Tab Murphy, the, the writer? Yeah, the great Tab Murphy, who's, you know, worked with us a number of times. And we I had known Tab for quite a while. He um, oh, uh, worked on Tarzan. Uh, he wrote the, some of the original screenplay material for Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, and, and he was at the table with us. Uh, and we were in a place where we had made a couple of movies that were pretty successful. Hunchback, Beating the Bees, Lion King. And um, 
and the studio was willing to listen to us, which is something that doesn't always happen. Um, and so I think that's why they were game to say, yeah, let's do an adventure movie. And Tab and Kurt and Gary and I had this uh, kind of bigger vision. And it was it was partly to give the audience something new and partly to give ourselves something new, because as much as we love doing musicals, uh, it's good to branch out once in a while and see if you have something else in your bag of tricks. Yeah, I think the, there was a quote uh, by Kirk uh, from back in the day where it was less songs, more explosions. Yeah, Gary actually went out into T-shirts with that on it. So uh, <laughs> you should offer those once again on some website. But fewer songs, more explosions. And, um, and that was kind of our marching orders to ourselves. And it had to have all the hallmarks of a great Disney adventure movie, um, whether that was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or Island at the Top of the World or whatever. But to really enjoy that kind of Adventureland motif was uh, was fun. And, and this was this was also um, like computer generated animation, computer generated imagery, CGI was was really starting to play a bigger role in the hand-drawn animated films. And especially for this particular picture, because there were a lot of, uh, well, there was the Leviathan and uh, the, mm-hmm. there was uh, all kinds of machinery and things like that, that, that was being done uh, via computer animation. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was, uh, uh, as you say, 20 years ago and, so computer graphics was out there in a big way with uh, Pixar and some other studios, uh, DreamWorks. And, and it was, uh, you know, Disney was getting into it, but it was slow getting into it, to be honest. And there were some shows and some school of thought that movies like Atlantis and uh, Pro Treasure Planet should have been CG animated. But a little bit of the problem at the time was the computer wasn't great at animating humans. If you look at right. humans in the original yeah. Toy Story, they were pretty abysmal. Yeah. Um, Sid. So, yeah, so we, we, we really tried to stay with what we knew well at the time, which was uh, hand-drawn animation. And it fit this movie really well because we wanted a comic book kind of stylized look to it. And, and, and speaking of that stylized, uh, you, you did bring in um, uh, a visual development artist uh, to sort of get that, uh, that look, right? Yeah. Yeah, we, we brought in several, actually. Uh, probably the most... Uh, influential in the movie was uh, Mike Mignola and both Kirk and Gary came to me one day and said, Hey, we want to bring in this guy, uh, Mike Mignola. And he's uh, really well known for doing Hellboy. And at the time, Hellboy wasn't all that known that new live action movies hadn't happened. uh, But Mike was really well known. And so I I called him up and I think he thought it was probably a a mistake or something, but um, he's a very humble guy. And I said, you know, we love your work. We'd like to, have you help us design the movie? Uh, and thankfully he did. He came in and, and helped us design a lot of the creatures and look at the Atlanteans and the Atlanteans uh, craft that they, uh, you know, the laser shooting fish that they rode around on and the look yeah. of Atlantis and the city of Atlantis. Uh, and that was a big help because we didn't want it to look like Atlantis of the uh, George Powell days with was just Greek and Greek columns and, and togas and things like that. So uh, Mike was, was hugely helpful. Matt Codd was another designer. A lot of people from live action, Ricardo Delgado, great creature uh, designer. So several people came into the movie and helped us design different aspects of it. Well, I, I, one of the things I thought was interesting about it, Atlantis was, was the invention of an Atlantean language. Uh, yeah. and, and how did that come about? And, and how did Mark, uh, uh, is it? Auckland. Auckland. Uh, yeah. Involved? Well, for in a couple of ways, um, the, 
main protagonist of the story, Milo Thatch, is a linguist who works at the Smithsonian. And so it made some sense that uh, we had always thought a language would be appropriate because that's what often separates different civilizations. So that there was a long lost civilization. They would speak something different, like Icelandic or like, you know, whatever. And um, so that was important to us. And so we actually went out looking for and found a linguist who had worked uh, with the Smithsonian and also with uh, you know, the, the producers of Star Trek to create the Klingon language. And that was Mark Lockran. And Mark is amazing. You know, he comes in uh, with his linguist uh, toolkit and starts to create a language and an alphabet that would work uh, for the Atlanteans. And it's based on actual languages. Um, oddly enough, California is a huge hotbed of languages because of the weather and the um, you know, ability of people to move around. There were you know, dozens and dozens of languages that grew up in California, uh, most of which are lost now. But uh, so Mark early in his career had studied languages and studied them on the West Coast and um, came out and really helped us develop that civilization. So we had the look of it develop on like, uh, like um, um, Ebola and the kind of culture and language developed uh, by Mark Lockling. Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting when I was doing a little research before we we went on the air uh, that he had worked on developing the Klingon language with the Star Trek television and, and uh, movies and, uh, and, and all of that and, and how important that was uh, for, for these types of uh, films. Yeah, and he, you know, he would go to Comic-Con, different places to lecture, and, uh, you know, the Klingon speakers are extremely uh, demanding about how the language is spoken. And Mark is kind of the pass-through of deciding what new words are, what the pronunciations are. And now after 20 years, the Atlantean language is about the same thing. It's a real um, you know, hardcore followers that really want the language to be kept and preserved, even though it's a language that didn't grow out of culture naturally. It's kind of a commissioned language, but yeah, yeah. Um, still really popular. I wonder if they're going to use that in that new uh, Black Panther film. You have to wonder because they're going to be working with Namor and the Atlanteans there. So, you know, that's another thing they could, they could I, use. They could be fascinating. Uh, and they've talked about doing it in Francis, uh, you know, live movies and that kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I hope they do when the time is right because it's a great property to play with. You know, um, uh, speaking of the language, uh, I uh, again uh, came across uh, our old friend uh, John Emerson's name uh, yeah. because he he helped design the actual uh, alphabet for the film. He did. Uh, I mean, John's, yeah. John, uh, his career at Disney goes way back to Sleeping Beauty and maybe before. Yeah, uh, amazing craftsman, would you call him? Um, he, he was he, he was an all around great artist because uh, we I worked with him extensively on Fantasia two thousand uh, and uh, and so I think the Atlantis alphabet may have been one of the last things he may have been may have done before he retired. Yeah, and he approached as a designer um, and came up with all the shapes and things that he thought might be appealing. Not always associating those shapes with the letter of the Arabic alphabet. But they yeah. would come into Kurt and Gary and I, and we would look at them and say, oh, that's a nice letter. Maybe that can be kind of a B sound. <laughs> and that can be kind of a <laughs> S sound. And, um, and so with Mark, uh, Mark's alphabet, and then the designs we were starting to get in from John, we were starting to develop it all. And what a great thing to do. You never get a chance to do that in any other job, to say, hey, you guys, can you run and invent a civilization? Um, <laughs> so you know, we felt pretty lucky to be able to play around in that 
sandbox. You know, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the cast oh, yeah. and, and, and how the cast came about. Like, you know, uh, uh, Michael J. Fox, again, he was at the top of his career at that point. I think he had already done some Back to the Future movies and, and, and whatnot. Uh, how, how did he come about as being Milo? Um, yeah, he was at the top of his career and he had uh, Back to the Future goes back into the 90s a little bit. But he was so well-known and so well-liked, and we needed somebody who could be um, heroic, but also have a lot of vulnerability. So just to get a, uh, you know, kind of muscle-bound, square-jawed hero to take us through Atlantis, uh, that kind of character was certainly nothing like myself or Kirk and Gary. So we wanted someone who was an everyman, who was kind of a scholar, who was um, someone who you could maybe see yourself... uh, walking in his shoes. Um, he was brave when he had to be, um, but he really was all about his work and, and coming across with a, a good presentation to his bosses at the Smithsonian. Uh, but at times very hapless and very uh, clumsy, kind of an absent-minded professor kind of guy. So, I mean, nobody was more perfect. I don't know that we ever really went out to anybody else for that role. You know, sometimes we go out to multiple people and see the yeah. But when it comes to him, I think it was always um, Michael J. Fox because you can't really do that you know, uh, it, it's curious. This is really an ens- uh, an ensemble cast. Uh, were you able to record a- any of these folks together, or was it all individual recording? Uh, it, it's weird, but it's uh, it's it's really unusual to record people together in any animated film. We would do it when uh, you know, like uh, Belle and the Beast would record together when we could give them a Pumbaa and Timon or something um, when it made sense because they were always opposite each other. But it was pretty rare. Um, I think we may have gotten uh, Free Summer who did key his voice to record with Michael J. Fox from time to time. Uh, but still pretty rare to be able to get those people together, mostly because of their schedule. But also selfishly, you like to kind of focus on one person at a time and really get their performance down so you get several different takes of a person's performance and then start to shuffle them in and intercut them with the other actors and create a and energy and somehow that works better for us, uh, making animated, uh, animated films. Yeah. You, you also, uh, recorded James Garner. I mean, he's, he was a legend at, at that point. Uh, and he, he does the voice of commander Lyle Tobias Rourke. Uh, yeah. and what was it like? Uh, were you at all these recording sessions or did you try to be at all of them? I was at all of them because I love, you it. have to be, right? You have to be, you want to be able to make the uh, actors feel at home. You want to support the directors and everybody. And you want to be an extra set of fresh ears on the set to be able to throw out ideas. So, um, yeah, James Garner, you know, most of us had grown up with him from his movies and his television shows. And Yeah, Maverick. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. Jim Rockford, The Rockford Files. And yeah. He loved doing animation because he loved playing golf. So he would come in like 10 o'clock and he'd be out of there by noon to be able to have lunch to go play golf. So um, a real pro, um, very funny. You know, he had been there and done that and seen everything um, and, and was a great, you know, kind of strong commander uh, for this group of people. And you could imagine that he would turn a little evil uh, before the whole thing was over. So um, really fun working with him. And uh, I, I, I mean, I've always been under the impression that like the um, the actors that have been in the in the business for decades, like Angela Lansbury and people like that, um, they're they're just such pros, but they're also really nice people, aren't they? 
they are almost without exception. I think that the people who have lasted in the industry tend to be professional enough to uh, behave. And when you do hear about actors or actresses misbehaving or being, uh, you know, just off base, it tends to be people that are you know, kind of insecure about what they're doing and people that, you know, five years later aren't around. Yeah. Um, yeah. So guys like Garner, um, you know, amazing, uh, Jim Farney, Leonard Nimoy was in our cast. Uh, yeah. You know, I was going to get to that. What was that like? Cause I mean, he's really, I mean, what a legend he was at that point. Yeah. I'm going to say it was, uh, intimidating because um he's such a talented man you know he, we knew him from his theater roles and from spock of course in star trek and uh and yet he all we also knew him as a director uh a great photographer yeah so he, had all, he was like multi-sided talent um so it was great to work with him uh pretty serious when he came in you know really wanted to work on the material really wanted to understand the material um so he, he wasn't necessarily a you know show up and joke around kind of guy um, but boy, he worked hard to try to deliver this uh, character that had got the you know, kind of King of Atlantis regal qualities, uh, noble mm-hmm. qualities. Um, so again, you, you know, you get to work with these people that you never would cross paths with otherwise. And they tend to love it because they're either doing it for their kids or they're doing it because they're tired of getting up at four in the morning to be in hair and makeup all day. And, yeah. and they don't have to be. They can really do it because of the storytelling. And, uh, and the longevity of the movie. So, you know, we're talking about a movie that's 20 years old and has as big a fan following as it ever has. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure that's the case for movies that were made 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you, you mentioned Jim Varney. This, the, this was actually his last performance. Was it? Was, 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 yeah. Jim Varney's last performance was uh, uh, doing the voice of uh, Cookie Farnsworth, the, the Western style chuck wagon chef. Uh, yeah. And uh, he, he passed away from lung cancer in February of 2000 uh, before the production ended. Yeah. yeah. The last uh, session we had with him, I feel, excuse me, I'm just going to open a can of Mickey's Wide Mouth. That's Mickey's Wide Mouth. <laughs> um, I, I do not get paid for this, by the way. And, and it's not, it's just sparkling water. Uh, we went Here to, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, look, it's a LaCroix. Yeah. <laughs> um, we went to Nashville to uh, record Jim because he was not feeling well. And, uh, you know, but it came in with tremendous energy and he had done all those earnest movies and was such a popular actor, comedian. Yeah, he was yeah. at the top of his, I mean, he really was oh. at the top of his popularity oh. with, with the, the, the commercials he was doing and mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, the, the Vern, what it, it was, the Vern commercials. You know, hey, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't yeah, even know what legend. the product was. Well, no, he was, uh, a, he was a legend here in Nashville because uh, he was the purity man. He sold milk. And so that was his oh. character early going um, for purity dairies uh, and then. He just did the, all those uh, Ernest Goes movies, and then he yeah. ended up uh, doing Toy Story, and then working with you guys here for for Atlantis, and it was his swan song. But uh, you know what a well a talented guy, and very well loved from everyone here in Nashville. I can tell you that. Yeah, same same here. Boy, what's not to like? And, and it, it was memorable for recording him. It's my first time in Nashville anyway, and we recorded in one of the old kind of music studios that has a great history of Elvis and that kind of thing. Yep. So the um, just being in Nashville was kind of cool for us. Uh, and then Jim delivered a great performance uh, with lots of energy. So you do that, you know, you go chasing your cast around because they're special people and you want them to be in your movie. And so you're happy to hop on a plane and follow them anywhere. And uh, yeah. 
and, and I was going to say David Ogden Styers once again. Lucky charm. In, yeah, he was in Beauty with you guys. He was in Hunchback, and he's back again in uh, Atlantis: The Lost Empire, uh, doing uh, Fenton Q. Harcourt. <laughs> Mr. Harcourt worked for the Smithsonian and was kind of one of uh, Milo Thatcher's bosses. So Milo, the movie opens with Milo having to make a presentation to Mr. Harcourt and kind of rehearsing for that presentation. But yeah, you, you, if you can, you can't make a movie without David Stiers. And uh, sadly, he's gone now, but he's such a, such a funny man. And um, uh, you know, one of those intelligent people who was well-read and into um, the arts and politics and would love to go around and conduct symphony orchestras around the United States, uh, you know, for fundraisers or just for his own enjoyment. So a multifaceted uh, guy. You know, he, he was a genuinely nice man. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. just genuinely super nice. I had the pleasure of working with him. Uh, he, he did the uh, narration for some Winnie the Pooh projects I was involved nice. with. Yeah. Um, they were educational projects and, and we cast him, uh, uh for the, for the, uh, narrator yeah. and he was just really terrific. A sweet guy. I mean, just really, uh, super professional, but, but relaxed and, and funny. And, uh, we always enjoyed our sessions with him. Yeah. It goes back to what you were saying. A lot of these people who have existed in the industry for a while, I've done so because they are fun to work with. And it's not to say they don't have their ups and downs, but they, um, you know, they show up and they're ready to work and it's a profession. It's not just some sort of celebrity gig they're doing and they are professionals and there's a reason they're good actors. And if you don't think so, step up in front of a microphone sometime and you try it yourself. You know, <laughs> it's hard. It it's is very hard. It is. Cree Summer. Yeah. Talk about her because she's not necessarily a household name with a lot of people. Well, Chris Summer uh, is Canadian American and um, she had done a lot of voices uh, on uh, in sitcoms and especially done a lot of voices in animation. Um, she was uh, one of the original voices in Inspector Gadget, I think. And, and, and so she'd been around and done voice work and we met her via our casting director uh, saying, well, you should consider this person because uh, she had a great voice. Uh, not that it matters in animation, but she was a person of color who brought some uh, kind of exotic qualities to that voice. And, um, and, and so we, we brought in several people to test for that role of uh, Princess Kida. Uh, and, and Cree was the one that kind of connected with all this. Yeah, she, she had a, she, I thought she had a very powerful and, and a strong voice, you know, for the character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we, when you're making up these characters, we were looking for that uh, strength. And, you know, Kita's just made up out of a whole cloth. There's no historical character named Kita. She was actually named after uh, the people in the room the day we named her. Uh, so Kida is for the first two letters of Kirk and Dave, <clears throat> one of our writers. Her full name is Kida Gash, and uh, Ga is for Gary and uh Gosh, yes, H is for Sherry, one of our PAs at the time. <laughs> so we just looked around and said, well, let's take the first two letters of everybody's name. And so she became Kidagagash forever. Uh, so, you know, there you have it. That's awesome. That's, everything now. That, is a, that is a great behind the scenes little tidbit. I had not heard that before. That's, not, that's, that's new to me. Not sure that's been revealed before. But <laughs> oh, there is, you go. It's a scoop, y'all. 
It is a skull rock scoop. <laughs> 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 you have to get that kind of reverb machine. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll do that in post. Uh, we'll do Thank it in post. You. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the voices that I thought was really uh, sort of a, a kind of a, a kick in the pants was Don Novello, who everybody knows as Father Guido Car- uh, Carducci. Father Guido Carducci from Saturday Night Live. How did that come about? Oh man! Um, <laughs> well, again, you're looking for. We had we had this team of experts we needed. So, uh, let's say you're making a film about a team of experts to go to the center of the earth. You're going to need a cartographer, a map person, a language person. Uh, you'll need a radio communications person, and one of the guys you'll need. Uh, You'll need a mechanic. You'll need a, a person who can blow things up because you're going to be tunneling. You'll need a digger. You know, so all those things were on our list. Uh, we even had a magician at one point named uh, Soltar or Soltan who ended up on the cutting room floor. But, it, you know, so this, this ensemble of characters was all about a kind of shopping list of characters you needed to go to the center of the earth. Um, so we needed an explosives guy. And uh, listening to all the actors that were out there, Don Novello uh, as Guido Sarducci does this kind of uh, halting Italian accent <laughs> that just floored us when we were watching him and when he auditioned for the role. He's one of the driest, funniest people ever. And I remember famously at the premiere, uh, we talked him into coming on stage as Father Sarducci yes. and giving a blessing to the film. Uh, which he did. He did like 10 minutes of, of stand-up and gave a kind of comic blessing to the film as Father Sarducci. So, uh, you know, once again, comic genius. Um, and um, you know, just one of those guys from the early days of Saturday Night Live who is just a very, very silly guy. He did a, you know, he, he famously did a uh, high school yearbook full of sheep. Uh, so it would show like the football team and there'd be like uh, 11 sheep. And then uh, it would have like, a sheep running with a foot, real sheep running with a football. And it would just say, uh, you know, Eddie turns the corner, you know, that kind of stuff, like the, the traditional kind of things you might see in a yearbook. Uh, but it was just all the pictures of the seniors and juniors, everything else were sheep. So, uh, it, it, you know, just an odd, uh, he had this theory that the uh, green plastic lawn chairs were taking over the world and he would go out <laughs> and photo document that and show you like they're, there's another one in Niagara Falls. And look, there's one by the Grand Canyon. And that that was a form the aliens were taking on. So his comedy was uh, pretty dry and interesting. And he was just great as our explosives expert, Biddy. And so much of his dialogue was improv. You know, we, we would write it, but then he would come up with uh, dynamite, uh, paper clips, uh, you know, it's kind of improv lines. That's awesome. great. I, I'm, I'm curious when, when you, when you're doing a film with, with uh, say Kirk and Gary or whoever you're working with, <clears throat> yeah. uh, I, is there ever a moment where somebody says, I really want to work with that person. I want Let's get that person in. They have to do the voice of this character. Have you ever had those experiences where? Yeah. Yeah. Not, I, I, not all the time, but often. Yeah. And, um, most of the time it's based on not just the personal uh, kind of fan quality of the person, but you know, somebody that would be really great at the job. Like I, we always want to work with Kevin Klein on, on Hunchback. Yeah. We were able to bring him in because he's, he's Kevin Klein for God's sake. He's funny and interesting and romantic. You know, and, a, a great, and a great actor. Great Shakespearean actor. Yeah. Um, Leonard Nimoy was certainly in that school. So yes, we were all fanboys, but also 
he's Leonard Nimoy, you know, so sure. to be able to send a request out and say, uh, would he be interested and then have him come back and say, yeah, go meet uh, and would love to do it is, uh, is fantastic. We, we, you know, we tend not to abuse that and, uh, you know, but, but um, uh, no, you're really in it for the storytelling. Sometimes there, you have to pull that card. You know, you, you, yeah. you only, ha- you only go around this, this life once. So you might as well try to cash that in. And I'm glad you did. I'm a huge Star Trek fan. It's great that you worked with, uh, you know, David Ogden Stiers and you worked with Leonard Nimoy, all of them, you know, from Star Trek. And that's just an amazing, that's great. It's great that you're able to. Yeah. Well, and, and Don Novello falls into that category. And, right. uh, and, and then every once in a while you find a surprise kind of person like Florence Stanley, who played uh, Mrs. Packard, the communications expert. Yeah. Um, and, and Florence Stanley was a uh, character actress who had been around for quite a long time and could really do that disinterested, uh, uh, you know, character that was just doing her job. And uh, she, she'd been on television in Barney Miller and uh, yeah, she, other she things. Did, yeah, my two dads and nurses and yeah. I mean, she she she's really terrific. I mean, and she and I know what you're saying. It's that sort of like I don't really care. I'm just doing this, you know, kind yeah. of attitude, you know, with, with that, a little yeah. sarcastic twist on the and, lines. And she's my favorite character in the movie. I have to say, Dave Crossman animated her, and she's just very, you know, commander. There's a sea monster outside. Okay. And then she'd always be on the phone to somebody else. Like she was, it was 1908. So she was like on the switchboard to somebody else. Okay. So anyway, Flo, uh, I went down to the market yesterday. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Uh, Commander, it's for you. All right. Anyway, Flo. So she was always kind of talking around. She couldn't Uh, be bothered. Yeah. She definitely couldn't be bothered. She couldn't be bothered. And man, I got to tell you that, that uh, the characters in Atlantis were so fun because of that. Um, even characters that seemingly are meaningless, like the stormtroopers, the characters that were surrounding Rourke and his group, which were kind of faceless gas mask characters. Yeah. Uh, Dave, Dave Reynolds, one of our writers, just wrote endless gags for them, most of which we didn't use, but they were all like, um, you know, you see two stormtroopers sitting by the fire at nighttime and, and they go, uh, hey, is that, is that mustache you're growing? Is that new? Yeah, 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 it's just new. It looks pretty good on you. And then you were covered with gas masks, so you couldn't see anything. <laughs> um, hey, you're looking pretty good today. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. So uh, are you hungry? Yeah, yeah, I could eat. You know, so it's just like the daily life of a, of a stormtrooper becomes just stupid and hilarious to put in a movie like this. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I I have to say, though, uh, it, it always is entertaining to see what comes out of these recording sessions because there is a certain amount of tweaking and improv that goes on with all of these actors, isn't there? Because yeah. some of them will, will just say, Hey, I don't think Milo would say this. He, it would be more something like this or, you know. Well, yeah, you want that. Um, and we've got that pretty much out of everybody on this cast. I mean, and a lot of it depends on the role. If it's a more dramatic thing, you're probably not going to get a lot of improv because it's about fulfilling the needs of the story. Uh, but Jim Varney and uh, even John Mahoney that played with more, you're, you're liable to get much more, uh, kind of relaxed uh, improv out of them. And you want that. You want to cast actors who can come up with that. And Mahoney had been on uh, Frasier and had a long career in the theater in Chicago and different places. Um, and and so it, out of those kinds of actors, you're hoping that they'll read the script straight and then come back and read it a couple times 
uh, with some new ideas and they inevitably would. You know, I was I was a little surprised on the writing end of it that uh, Josh Whedon was attached to this early on. Yeah. And that's a legacy kind of attachment because he I don't. Recall ever, I've met with Josh before, and he's an, of course, amazing, gifted writer. But he um, had worked on an Atlantis proposal and idea and script for the studio for Disney at one point. And I think elements of it were uh, certainly about Atlantis. And so I think just in terms of paying tribute to his early contributions, uh, we had to give him screen credit. But that happens a lot. Uh, you know, that happens on almost every movie where some for writers, it's a thankless business. You're going out there paving the way in a, in a blank piece of paper kind of way. And um, so even though we didn't meet with him and he wasn't part of our version of the movie, you just kind of you want to follow up and just say, yeah, he did work on a title of Atlantis at the studio. And and then it was really Tad Murphy and, um, uh, you know, a lot of those guys, uh, Dave Reynolds that contributed to the yeah the boots on the ground kind of writing that we needed every day on the story. Yeah. Did, was, was part of, was part of Atlantis. Cause I, I didn't, this was one of the pictures I'd, I, I didn't do anything on um, uh, during that time period. I know, you know, like I helped out on Hunchback and Hercules while I was working on Fantasia and all that, but uh, were, were parts of this film done in Orlando in Paris? Or was it question? Was I, it Paris? I'm embarrassed to say, I don't recall. Uh, you know, what was happening at the time is a lot of those studios were coming and going and opening and closing. And maybe, um, Par- maybe Paris was closing, but, or, uh, Orlando was doing their own movies at that point, weren't they? Yeah. They were doing Lilo and Stitch and a lot of those and brother you know, bear Mulan. I mean, such good movies coming out of Orlando. Yeah. Um, so it could be that we were pretty much, uh, alone in, in, uh, doing those movies and, and this this was an interesting film because it was uh it was it was uh shot it was it was created in uh 35 millimeter anamorphic format which yeah. is which is a widescreen format now and, and that was a choice by the directors and you and the directors wasn't it yeah it's funny it was always hard to sell because uh there was a mythology that goes back to sleeping beauty that uh, widescreen would be expensive and um, cumbersome and costly to do. And it was on Sleeping Beauty. Uh, it was done again on uh, Lady and the Tramp, but that was yeah. really a traditional uh, movie that was shot a second time as a widescreen movie because Cinemascope was becoming so popular. Yeah. Um, but for Atlantis, we went into the beginning and said, it's a epic uh, adventure movie and it needs to be this format. And uh, we had a lot of examples of it. And, and the argument was always, well, you're going to have to use bigger paper because there's more east and west on the piece of paper. And we said, no, 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 you're not looking at the right way. We're actually using a smaller piece of paper because it's the same size. We're just using less north and south on that piece of paper. So a lot of it was semantics and trying to get rid of these old mythologies about what was expensive and what wasn't. Uh, certainly the CAP system, computer graphics helped a great deal. And, um, you know, we were able to do it in this format, which works perfectly for it. Yeah. I, I and I actually gives, I think a greater experience in the theater when you see films in, in a, in a widescreen format. Yeah, it you does. Know, it you, it know, does. You, you look at, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, you know, in, in widescreen, uh, I, I saw a print of that at the Cinerama Dome many years ago. And it, it's just breathtaking to be immersed into a film that, you know, with, with that wide of a screen. It is spectacular. And it's, uh, it, you know, we also had a horizontal kind of movie with submarines and, and 
seafood and all that stuff. It's very horizontal looking. And so the, the actual format of compositions was better in this horizontal format. Uh, and, and then sound wise uh, to be able to pull in James Newton Howard, to do the score. Uh, we mixed with Gary Wright's to up at uh, Skywalker sound. And, and those are huge elements of a movie. I think uh, music is, is far more than people expect in a movie to create a sense of, um, you know, the foreign kind of exotic side of Atlantis and the epic quality of the movie itself. And that's where uh, James Newton Howard really delivered. Well, you know, I have to say, uh, I, a couple of weeks ago saw uh, Jungle, uh, Jungle Cruise. Yes. These yeah. live action Jungle Cruise and James Newton Howard did the uh, score for that film. Great. And, uh, you know, it's a spectacular score, uh, as is the one for Atlantis. And, and the music is hugely important. I mean, it's, a, it's really a supporting role, uh, uh, supporting the entire film uh, and yeah. adds so much mood and emotion uh, when you watch a film. It's, I think people don't realize the, how exhausting it is to write film scores because you're writing the equivalent of a symphony or two every few months and um, it's unrelenting and you have to make every film seem fresh and look fresh and be new and you're doing it for years on end. Um, the voices you have uh, available to you change because you have different synthesized voices, computer voices, world instruments, all those things that maybe weren't in a traditional film score 25 or 30 years ago are really common now. So the voices are, are great, but it's an exhausting, difficult uh, job and it's key to storytelling. You have to have music tell your story as much as the dialogue and the colors do. And um, when when you guys recorded the score, do you recall where you recorded? Was it at Warner, Capital, Sony? Was it in London? Oh, let me just go into the Wayback Machine and uh, try to scan my vast uh, digital memory. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a clue. Some sound effects for you. Thank <laughs> you. I don't have a clue. I want to say it was in London, but I don't think that's true either. Um, you know, because it wasn't a huge uh, vocal score or whatever. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it was uh, a, was it was it a uh, an 80, 120 piece orchestra or uh, yeah, was it, yeah. it, it was a huge it, full orchestra, right? It was. And with a big chorus singing Atlantean lyrics over the top of most of it. So you have that kind of aspect of it, too. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's always fun. I think going to the uh, recording sessions, uh, you know, for the score. Uh, yeah, I'll I'll wake up in the middle of the night and uh, remember what happened. You'll you'll scream right it out. out. You'll scream. I was out. obviously <laughs> sedated in the back room for some reason, so uh, <laughs> not uncommon with me during post production. You know what 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 are your thoughts on the film? Uh, you know, it, it, it released. It had its premiere at the El Capitan on June third, two thousand one. It did a limited release in New York City and Los Angeles, and wide release followed uh, after that. Uh, you know what? When you look at the, you know, what did they do special for the for the uh, for the premiere of this film? At the El Capitan down in Hollywood, they had a whole Atlantean back lot built around the, the uh, El Capitan Theater. There, there's a parking lot around the theater most of the time, but they closed that down. They put tents up and they put in uh, Atlantean-based attractions and games and all kinds of things for people to do. And they had. Uh, the, the area next door to the El Capitan, which is now where the Jimmy Kimmel show uh, records, yeah. uh, was also part of that. So it, it was still very much in the, uh, you know, the scope of these big kind of worldwide uh, premieres. I think by that time, though, by the year 2000, there was a conservative, uh, conservative atmosphere kind of breaking back into the studio. 
not for any particular reason, but I, I think it was difficult to justify those uh, million dollar premieres at the Superdome after a certain point. Yeah. Uh, you were getting the same benefit that the internet was starting to thrive and flourish. So what used to take a lot of reporters being flown to a, a location to have a press junket, you can now do digitally. And instead of mailing around photographs and things, you could just email around a lot of material about the film. So the, the world was changing, I think, and that's partly what caused that. Uh, but, the, you know, they didn't spare any expense rolling the film out, that's for sure. Did um, uh, the, the film, I mean, did reasonably well on a worldwide basis. I mean, it, uh-huh. it, it, it almost hit $200 million uh, worldwide in its initial release. Uh, what was, um, you know, what, what was the sense on uh, on the opening of the film? Uh, it was okay. As I remember, honestly, it was a real transitional time because not only Atlantis, but... Uh, Treasure Planet and um, Emperor's New Groove and a lot of movies around that time were head scratchers for the audience because I think a lot of times people were saying, where's my princess movies? Where, you know, where are my hand animated princess movies uh, with songs? And, uh, and that's fair. You know, people certainly want and desire those and they're great movies. Uh, But I think it often takes time for people to get used to new, um, material coming from a place where you're used to something, uh, you know, always being a certain way. But again, we went to that adventure land kind of model and said, it's just as Disney as anything. So, uh, you know, just let's celebrate it and get it out there. Um, so the movie did well, it opened well, and it's one of those movies that's had tremendous legs in terms of its fan base. I mean, we had a, a 20th anniversary party is the only way I could describe it with 20,000 people online. This is about a month ago. Yeah, uh, with a lot of the people that worked on the movie and people just uh, listening in about the stories and interviews with Kirk and Gary and Tab and, and some of the voices on the movie. And uh, there's just this huge cult following now. And I think that comes from people that were of a certain age. Maybe they were eight or 10 or 12 years old when the movie came out. Uh, and now they're a little older and they have these strong, fond memories of that movie when they were young. Uh, same happens to me. You know, I think of Jungle Book because that's the movie I grew up on. Yeah. So there's a really loyal, loyal following right now for uh, Atlantis, for which and, I'm really thankful. And I would think, too, that there, there's also the film being discovered uh, yeah. By, yeah. Yeah, yeah. By, by kids who weren't born when it first came out. You know, yeah. uh, so the, the, you know, and, and it's available. Al John, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's available uh, on uh, Disney Plus, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, you know, I, I, I feel like it, it's interesting, you know, cause you can kind of compare it to uh, nightmare before Christmas in that it didn't open huge, but talk about a film that's had legs, right? It really has. Yeah. Nightmares, you the, know? the textbook case of that because nobody went to see it when it came out Yeah, and you would never know that. And I, I think the same is true for the, films of our youth. I, I couldn't tell you the box office of Jungle Book. Or, I know they were successful, but uh, Pinocchio wasn't that successful and Fantasia was not that successful. And But I think in time, people judge them for what they are and less about uh, what their immediate box office might have been. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I totally hear that. Um, 
when you think back 20 years, what, what do you think of, you know, what, what, what was, you know, can you contextualize uh, when this film came out, what was going on at the studio? Because there really was a transition going on. There, there was, a, you know, each successive film from, uh, from uh, Beauty, uh, really, actually, I would say from Great Mouse Detective uh, forward, uh, there was more and more CG animation going into each one of these films until it got to a place of like, there's so much CG, why don't we just do CG films? So there's that transition from 2D to CG starting to happen at, at Walt Disney Animation Studios. There's uh, Jeffrey left the company and started DreamWorks. There's more competition in town. And uh, there's a rift between Michael Eisner and, and Roy Disney brewing. Uh, and so there's a lot of cross currents going on when this film went out. Yeah, it was uh, a very tense time and I remember being kind of sad. Uh, the actual making of Atlantis was not at all. We were working with friends again. A lot of the Beauty and the Beast crew were on that movie and, and in terms of just the pleasure of working on a movie, I don't think any of them was better than Atlantis and I think that shows up on the screen. We had a lot of fun. Yeah. What was sad to me was the dynamic within the company was changing and it's exactly what you said. Um, I think the leadership of animation was starting to get uh, bored with animation, starting to go off to theater and some other interests. And that's, that's understandable because you get to a certain point, it had been 15 or 16 years mm -hmm. since Eisner and Wells came into the company and people want to change. People want to stretch other muscles. And that happens in the artistic and management ranks. Um, and there was a feud going on between uh, Roy Disney, who was uh, kind of with Stanley Gold mounting his Save Disney kind of uh, uh, attack uh, against Michael Eisner and, and, some very difficult internal struggles going on. And that's no fun when you're in the trenches trying to make a movie. No, because those uh, are diversions. Those are, those are to total diversions from actually the filmmaking process. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so you want to really kind of stick to what you're doing and stick to your knitting, which we were able to do. Uh, and you try to leave those uh, kind of disagreements uh, out of it. And, and we were able to do that. Um, but it doesn't make it any easier. And so it was a transitional period. I think the, the high uh, kind of excitement of the Renaissance period, which would be maybe from Roger Rabbit to Mermaid to uh, you know, a number of movies, uh, Lion King, Tarzan, Hunchback, those movies, was starting to wane a little bit. Um, a lot of people ask me, why don't you make a movie about um, kind of after Lion King, the post-waking Sleeping Beauty period, uh, and, and I, I don't want to because it's too sad, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a film about the end of an era. And to go back to something we were talking about last week, Steve Hickner, our friend, always talking about baseball and how it's a metaphor for animation. This would be like, you've been part of a winning team, uh, the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Chicago Bulls in basketball. And all of a sudden you can't win a game, you know, you just cannot get a break. And it was a little bit that way in animation. Good people, the same people in many ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you just, you couldn't win. And, you know, the same thing happened to Walt Disney. Walt Disney got tired of animation and 
migrated to television and theme parks. Yeah. Uh, a lot of his animators who grew up on films like Pinocchio and Snow White couldn't get a hit, you know, after a while. Yeah. Uh, and that's just humanity. That's just life. You know, um, we, we've got a question, a couple of questions from listeners. Um, uh, this is from Frank and he says, Disney seems hesitant to tackle a 2D traditional animated feature these days. Audiences clearly love that look and Disney has a great nostalgic value in the films from the 90s. Seems like an obvious way to go. Uh, I guess on the outside, it does seem that way, but I think on the inside, uh, we would have different response to that, wouldn't we, Don? Yeah, I, I don't know the thinking on the inside of Disney Animation now, except there's some really smart people running the place and they're doing some great movies. Um, I, I think for me, it is a, a technique is a technique, and I think the hand-drawn technique is by not by any stretch dead. You see beautiful hand-drawn animation coming out of Ireland, out of cartoon saloon studios. You see beautiful stuff coming out of Japan. Um, and, and so that technique has almost been taken over as a independent film, uh, international kind of film. I do think it'll come back at some point, but not by my generation. I think it'll be a, someday a bunch of kids will be digging in the yard and they'll come across an animation disc and a pencil and they'll go, what was this? And they'll you know, <laughs> kind of bring back the art form. Um, you know, and, and, and that happens, you know, things go through cycles. It's the fashion business, uh, the movie business is, uh, there's a conventional wisdom for a while that uh, 2d animation wouldn't sell. And that's just ridiculous. Uh, yeah, but it was out of fashion. It was out of fashion. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. It, uh, it, 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 to me, it wasn't about the technique. It was about the stories. Uh, it, it really was about the storytelling and, and uh, you know, the fact that, you know, Disney had a tradition of doing 2D, but that tradition transitions and grows and yeah. changes and evolves, you know, with, with all the successive generations of artists that come through the studio. So, you know, yeah. in, in, in my mind, uh, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think somebody, you know, like at that studio in Ireland or, you know, cartoon saloon or whatever, uh, I think somebody comes along and uh, once they do a film that becomes a, a cultural touchstone uh you know if it's a 2d movie and makes you know two billion dollars at the box office there's going to be executives yep. running down the halls of various animation studios going we've got to do a 2d movie that's what people yeah. want you know <laughs> you know it's it's so true and the art form isn't dead for sure um you know there's great 2d movies happening but it's like anything else things come and go different styles of clothing and fashion and food and entertainment come and go yeah. uh it's funny like stop motion animation was people said oh that's dead and now there's there's probably a half dozen stop motion movies happening right now as we speak yeah so uh they become very cool and very retro and very interesting to do and i love them uh and so i think at some point uh whether it's disney or other people you'll see that continue because it's a great art form and yeah, you can see the hand of the artist and kind of feel the creative process right there up on the screen Absolutely. Uh, we have a couple more questions. Uh, Andrea, oh, wow. Andrea asks, uh, and I, I'm almost hesitant to ask this question, Don, but oh, uh, she's asking, it, she's, she says, which film was your favorite? I can never answer this question really, but uh, yeah, I'll throw it to you. Which film it was is your difficult. favorite? It's like, which child is your favorite? I think exactly. of, of films I worked on, I think Beauty and the Beast may have a, a warm spot in my heart because it was the first movie I produced and working with Howard Ashman and just a lot of the things that happened during that movie were not easy, but they were, uh, 
special. And you know, I could say the same about Roger Rabbit. Roger Rabbit was really a tough movie to do, but I, the people and the times on Roger Rabbit were really memorable. Um, I, I, I was going to say, I'm with you on that because usually I, I say the same thing. You know, each one of these films is like your children. You can't, uh, you can't really uh, pick one over the other. Each one has its own experiences and challenges and interesting things that have happened. But I do say Roger Rabbit does bubble up to the top from the standpoint of the crew we worked with. Yeah. Yeah. They were extraordinary. And it was so, it was such a non-Disney experience, meaning that Disney is like a resident company of animators, of, of actors that have worked together on uh, summer stock productions year after year after year. Roger Rabbit was a one-off. We built, I showed up in London, uh, you know, by myself with hat in hand. I hired Max Howard. We started recruiting people and pulling a studio together. And when it was done, we, pretty much closed it down. Although a lot of people would go off and work with Dick Williams or would go off and work with Amblin. Um, it, it was really just a one-off and, uh, and Disney's quite different. Disney is a, a, a thankfully a group of people that kind of keep rolling from show to show. Yeah. I, 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 I love the, uh, the old electrical parts uh, building that we worked in the old electrical electrical parts factory uh, in Camden town that was refurbished into lofts. So it had that warm yeah. brick walls and, and beautiful wood floors. Yeah. Skylights and that kind of thing. Yeah. But it, it, you know, again, you like now you look at an animation studio, putting a new building in, you know, no matter who it is and they're, they're glorious, beautiful buildings with every amenity you could want. And I think uh, back in the early part of our career, it was really more uh, working at a warehouses and, and uh, hovels and, you know, back alleys and things, because you want to put all your dollars into the movie. It's like, you didn't need an espresso machine. You just want to get your money up on the screen. And I don't say that to uh, aggrandize myself, although I'm not above that, but I do feel like it's, um, you know, about a different kind of, sensibility where we were just trying to prove something and put something on the screen. It wasn't a big business back then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another question was uh, what, what inspired you to make these iconic films? Um, I, I guarantee you they're not iconic when you decide to make them. Uh, you know, <laughs> you, you don't like, for example, if we started out today and said, let's make um, an iconic film and we'll just choose a topic like the old West and we'll pull some elements together. Uh, you may hope that someday the audience appreciates it in that way, but you're really trying to tell a story that engages people. Some titles like Beauty and the Beast are special and kind of in the same sentence as Little Mermaid and Cinderella and Peter Pan. Howard Ashman used to say, you want to aspire to put a put a movie that you make on the shelf next to those. So imagine your old VHS collection and you have Peter Pan and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and Snow White. And you want to put Little Mermaid and Beauty the Beast right there. Other films are uh, aspirational in different ways of trying different genres like Atlantis or, uh, or Treasure Planet or even Home on the Range, which was a, you know, a conversation by itself. It wasn't a, a, a huge hit movie, but a movie like uh, Emperor's New Groove was a huge hit movie and probably the most, uh, the, the biggest cult movie uh, of any of them now, you know, when it yeah. opened up, a few people went and saw it. A lot of people didn't get it, but now people quote uh, dialogue from that movie chapter and verse, like it was, you know, scripture of some sort. So you never know, you never know what's going to be iconic and what's not. You just take one show at a time and you try to do your best regardless of if it's a title like Beauty and the Beast or it's a title like Emperor's New Groove, you're still trying to deliver some entertainment and some diversion to the audience. 
Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree with you. I mean, you you when you're working on these projects, you you never think in terms of this is an iconic movie. You don't know no. that. You won't know that for twenty years. You no, know? and and I mean, no one no one thinks I'm going to write an iconic song, a memorable song. I'm going to write an iconic. I'm going to design an iconic dress or write an iconic novel. Uh, certainly, that's your hope. You know, certainly everybody wants to write Catcher in the Rye or whatever. But uh, all you can do is make it as authentic and personal as you can. You know, as a producer, that's what you're trying to do. Pull a group of people together that love working with each other and, and may disagree at times, but can make something that's authentic to them and to the time period and, uh, and a piece of art if you're lucky. And that's the best you can do. If the audience appreciates it then or 20 years later, wow, that's just all bonus. Yeah. Yeah. One, one final question. Uh, what character do you think you can relate to and why? Wow. And, uh, what a great question. I, in Atlantis, I relate to Milo because I like his stumbling personality of someone who's, uh, you know, has a lot of knowledge, tries to do the right thing, tries to pull a team of people together, but then uh, is a little hapless at times. I, I love that idea for a character. Because I think that's most of us. Most of us are not like Gaston, that are kind of heroically trotting around and you know feeling like they know it all. And if you know people like that, chances are they're horrible. Um, <laughs> so I, I really relate to the more uh, kind of self-effacing characters or to characters like Pumbaa and Timon who are just uh, silly and flatulent. Well, because I myself am silly and flatulent. I was going to say, yeah, I resemble that <laughs> remark. Are we so. all? <laughs> yes, I think the, the three of us definitely are. Sure. Don, uh, I... Um, First off, I, I want to thank you so much for being with us for three consecutive shows. I mean, oh, you know, that, that was just incredible to to be able to to do Beauty and the Beast, Hunchback, and Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Um, uh, three three shows in a row was fantastic. We're we're glad that uh, you enjoyed being in the um, the green room for for those uh, weeks. Uh, and, it's it's uh, beautiful in there. I, you could use a window. Actually, it's my only. <laughs> Sorry. Concern and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, having to having to hot bunk in there with some of the other staff was not pleasant. But aside from <laughs> that, it's not bad. You know, it, I, yeah, it's, I, it's I, an, I think a, as the show grows, we, we may be able to get some budget money to do a renovation in there. It's in the budget. You know? Thank you. Yeah, it's a proposal. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, no, it's been a pleasure. It's been great. You know, I'm a fan of what you guys do. And I listen to, you know, a lot of my friends and colleagues and people I admire on your podcast. So I appreciate that very much. And, and uh, it's been really fun reminiscing over the last three weeks. Thanks. Well, Thanks. you know, before we go, though, I, I do want to talk to you briefly because this to me is like a whole nother show. I mean, honestly, I've said to all of our colleagues that we've had on the show over the years, uh, over the past year, um, that um, we can't possibly cover a person's career in one show. And we couldn't possibly cover your career in one show or even three. I mean, we, we did three movies, but there's so many more facets to you because you really are a true renaissance man as far as I'm concerned and and before we go I do want to ask what you're working on now I know like your your documentary Howard uh, about Howard Ashman is on Disney plus um, what other what other films are you working on what are you engaged in and what, what's making you tick and excited these days 
Well, I'll tell you exactly. Um, there's two films that are that I'm working on that are coming out shortly. Uh, I'm really on this kick of doing films about artistic heroes. I think there's plenty of films about, and rightly so, about sports heroes, Olympic heroes, political heroes. Uh, and, and yet, if you're a kid growing up and, and need to find some role models and heroes from the arts, whether it's an actor or a sculptor or a painter uh, or a potter, you have very little to draw from. So the Howard Ashman movie, certainly, and, and uh, a lot of the films that they're making are about that. So I'm, I'm working on a film right now that will be out in October on PBS called Life Centered, and it's about a potter named Jean Taylor, and she is just a, a humble person that sits at a potter's wheel and throws pots and glazes them. And along with that is kind of like a Yoda who teaches the wisdom of life through her work with clay. And I've been working on that for uh, on and off for three years and she's 94 years old. And I just met her. Uh, I just visited her again over the weekend and she's as smart as they come. And, uh, and so that'll be on PBS uh, in uh, October. And then the other thing I'm working on that will also be out, I believe in October, November is, um, a tour of the Walt Disney archives. I, about a year and a half ago, was able to go over and walk through all the different warehouses of the archives, almost unattended. And, and I brought a film crew along with me and we dipped into all the areas of, of sculptures and map paintings and storage and costumes and vehicles and all that stuff. And we filmed it and that's coming to Disney plus in the fall. So oh, yeah. awesome. that tour, yeah, and, and we end up in Walt Disney's office, which has been fully restored down to the last uh, book on the shelf. And um, Becky Klein, who's the head of the archives, uh, invited me to to do this just as a celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Walt Disney Archives. So we just start finishing that now, and that'll be out there in Disney Plus. Can't wait. Fantastic. Looking forward to that. That sounds exciting. Yeah, that's fun. And with that, I want to say thank you very much. Hey, back at you. Love what you guys do. And um, yes, thank you. And the audience. Yeah, uh, the studio audience here is going wild. They're absolutely wild. <laughs> Appreciate everything. Thanks for the fresh fruit plate again in the green room. It was a pleasure. And um, hope we can cross paths again soon. I look forward to doing this again, Don. Well, we're going we're gonna to touch base from time to time as the show continues to grow. Uh, and bring you back on to talk about all kinds of other things. It would be my pleasure. Your attention, please. Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. Once again, Dave, a lot, a lot of juicy tidbits and behind the scenes news there. Revelations. Really, really, absolutely. And, uh, and, you know, I loved hearing the stories about the Atlantean language uh, that Don talked about and my old friend, John Emerson, who I, I, I didn't realize until we were started talking about it, that John uh, had designed the uh, alphabet for the Atlantean language. Right. And, 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 and as soon as Don mentioned that uh, we talked about it, uh, I realized, I, I kind of remembered it. John working on that. He was, he was really terrific. He was somebody who worked with me on Fantasia 2000. He was one of those guys that had been there for like 45 years. He was there when Walt was still running the studio and uh, what a terrific artist. Absolutely. I think once again, this film is very, you know, underrated 
And I encourage people to definitely check this film out. It's got an amazing style, great story, of course, animation. But once again, if you love what you heard, if you're just now listening and subscribing to the show, thank you so much for hitting that subscribe button. Be sure to check us out everywhere you get podcasts. Tell your friends, share this show with everybody you know that is down with Disney, down with pop culture and films, and follow us on every social platform Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and shoot us those emails to Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljohn at SkullRockPodcast.com. And Dave, you've got the final word. As always, peace and love to everybody out there. Go out and be kind to one another. Have a great week. And we look forward to seeing you right back here at the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast is made possible by listeners like you. We'd love to thank Charles, Lindsay, Spencer, and Joshua. To support this podcast to sustain future episodes, visit anchor.fm forward slash Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List Podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host the Disney List Podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.